Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, taking time again to today talk about theology of the body once again. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Kyle. And yeah, what a great topic. You know, one of these, I mean, St. John Paul II contributed so much to to the church and his catechetical talks that we speak of as theology of the body were just amazing and have, you know, as the anthropology that he presents and a lot of his original philosophical thinking and just amazing. You know, it's really about human love in the divine plan. It's about really anthropology, Christian anthropology, and it's very beautiful. And there's the document itself that was written by St. Pope John Paul II. There's been many books and classes taught. There's conferences. There's all kinds of different ways that people have tried to explain this to others and to break it down. Do you think that we've kind of reached, uh, we've we've mined it for everything that we can and that that information is out there now? Or do you think people will continue to discover and and find new ways to apply those teachings to daily life? Yeah, I think the latter. I think it's so rich that it'll continue to mm. to be a source of reflection for philosophers, for theologians. And also, in my opinion, it's not as widely known as it should be. I think a lot of Catholics and others have learned basics about the theology of the body, but a lot have not. So, I mean, we make a big effort in our diocese, especially in our schools, to teach theology of the body. But, I mean, we're talking about 129 talks. Yeah. I mean, this is a lot of material. So I'm still learning, even though I've read a lot on it. The insights are are so deep and profound. And, you know, the last episode we talked about, well, as I mentioned, there are six cycles to these 129 talks. And in our last program, we talked about the first cycle. I kind of summarized the topic of original man, Mm -hmm. which is the human person before the fall. And, And then we talked about, you know, how the Holy Father... John Paul traced God's original plan for man and woman at the dawn of creation. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that is perhaps the richest part of the whole theology of the body. What we call that state of original innocence before sin. So he brought to light some fundamental truths about our human nature and our destiny and how our very bodies reveal that we've been called to live what he called a communion of persons, in Latin, communio personarum, Hmm. a communion of persons by giving ourselves in love. And he made famous that he spoke of the law of the gift that's inscribed in us, the nuptial meaning of the body, which is a really a revelation of God himself reflecting because it would be that the human person reflects in the body the eternal communion of self-giving love among the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. So that is something very important, and I think as a basis to understand John Paul's whole theology of the body is um, that first cycle on original man. But that's not it. I mean, then he goes on, to dozens of talks on historical man, and that is man after the fall. Mm -hmm. Which would be 
All of us. All of right? us. We are historical man. Right. We're not original man. We're in history. We are post yeah. the fall. Right. And then the third cycle will be about eschatological man, which is after death. Mm -hmm. Basically, man in heaven. And that is really something I would love. I mean, that's a part where I think a lot, I think could be really um, studied. Eschatology is the study of, eschaton means the end. So okay. the end times the, and then after, after death. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the briefest. John Paul only gave nine talks on eschatological man where okay. there were dozens on, on original man and historical man. But we'll get to that, I'm sure, yeah. in a future episode. Well, I imagine it might be a little bit lighter. I, we, we know somewhat about it, but none of us have experienced right. that. Like We have all experienced historical man, so there's probably a lot more to, to and, and Jesus talked about right. that a lot. Yeah, well. in Scripture. And, and that's what, you know, in each of these categories, it's not just philosophy. I mean, John Paul is looking at Revelation and Scripture and tradition. So as we saw when we talked about original man, he went into such depth on the, the Genesis accounts of creation, both in the first and second chapter, and really plumbing the depths of meaning in those accounts. And also, he, even in this next part on historical man, eschatological man, it's the same thing. He takes some key scripture passages and really plumbs the depths of those of meaning in hmm. those passages. So where does he start with this? Does he start with a uh, scripture again? He does in this um, part on historical man, which is what we're moving to now. The Holy Father will looks very much at the story of man's fall in Genesis chapter three. Even before that, he takes a New Testament passage like he did with mm -hmm. the original man where he, Jesus is teaching on marriage and divorce in answer to the Pharisees. He started with that. Well, here he starts with something, a single verse from the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Mm. So he starts with that, which you'll see as I talk about this, how that relates to Genesis 3. Okay. So before history, the dawn of recorded history, anyhow, hmm. we have the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that incident, which we call the fall, has left its mark on every person born since then, including you and me. Adam and Eve, obviously, were tempted by the devil, and they disobeyed God. So they really turned away from the one who had created them, who had breathed life into them, God who had created the universe as their home, they giving, creating them as a gift to each other. And, you know, we have this fall, which is gets into the whole mystery of evil. Hmm. And what was the essence of their sin? I will often say that the first sin, and many do, is pride, which is true. Hmm. What John Paul it says that the moment of sin is the moment in which, and I quote, the gift 
is questioned in man's heart. In other words, Adam and Eve questioned God's gift. It's really a doubt questioning in their hearts their deepest meaning of the the gift, Mm -hmm. God's gift, you know, which is what was God's motive in creating? His motive was love. This is the original covenant. So man turned his back on love, Mm -hmm. on God, the Father, basically casting God out of their hearts. So we have then historical man being tainted by sin, breaking the covenant with the Creator. So the original innocence that we see in the story of the garden is lost. And we see the effects of this throughout history, a history, you know, the tragic human history, so many wars and conflicts and sufferings and cruelties. So the effects of sin on human life are profound. And this is where, John Paul, this is where he's very original. After they disobeyed God, they experienced something that they never felt before. Shame. Hmm. They're suddenly ashamed in front of each other. So when we read Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So their relationship with each other changed. We talked in the section on original man about how they were naked without shame. Mm -hmm. Now we have the appearance of shame. They're not only ashamed in front of each other, but also before God. And... Then they experience uh, an emotion that they never experienced before, fear. Hmm. A certain fear always belongs to the essence of shame, John Paul wrote. So Adam and Eve felt compelled to hide themselves from the one who created them out of love. Right. So we see the tragedy of this. I'll just continue reading Genesis 3 verses 8 to 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, why? Why did they suddenly feel ashamed in front of each other and in front of God, in God's presence? They were naked before their sin, but they were not afraid then. They felt no shame. A new phenomenon has arisen, and that phenomenon is lust. So that gets back to that New Testament passage that I mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in the heart. So, lust. St. John, in his first letter, talks about concupiscence. Okay, so we have concupiscence now as a result of original sin. 
That's how, this how, tendency to sin. Yeah. So there's a triple concupiscence that St. John writes about. And one of them is the lust of the flesh. Another is the lust of the eyes. And third, the pride of life. Hmm. So John Paul gets into this whole, this whole thing using the first letter of John, because in Genesis, we see the appearance of these three forms of lust. And there's just one verse, really. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. So let's think about this. Lust causes Adam and Eve to be ashamed of their own nakedness because they start viewing each other's bodies differently, no longer as a person to be loved, but as an object to be used for selfish gratification. Eve covers herself. Notice, Eve covers herself, basically saying, Adam, stop looking at me like that, mm -hmm. you know? So we have this, this, this change now. It's like she's saying, Adam, don't look at me like that, you know? So historical men, including us, were tainted by sin. Now, the fact that they experienced shame reveals, though, that their nature hasn't been totally corrupted by sin. You know, Martin Luther and other Protestants would teach that our nature was totally corrupted by sin. That's not Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. So we believe that, yes, we've been corrupted, but not totally corrupted. Because if you were totally corrupted, you wouldn't even have shame in treating a person as an object. So this whole thing, this original sin, also puts the nuptial meaning of the body in danger. Adam and Eve's experience of shame leads them to modesty. Notice they clothe themselves with mm -hmm. these aprons. The shame and then the modesty reveal that lust hasn't completely destroyed the nuptial meaning of the body. But concupiscence does threaten the nuptial meaning. Hmm. It does so by reducing the other person's body to an object of enjo for enjoyment. So lust basically questions whether the other is really a person willed by God for his or her own sake because it reduces the other person's body to an object. Now remember in the state of original innocence, the Adam and Eve, the human person, guided by his intellect, had complete dominion over the passions. Adam and Eve loved each other as persons with a love that, of the will that moved them to give their entire life, their whole selves to each other. 
so they were supremely free. That's freedom. Mm-hmm. That's real freedom. But sh- sin changed that. So this original harmony of the human person is destroyed by the fall because with concupiscence, we have the passions that kind of defy even our will against the true good that we know. So one's interior freedom is lost. Lust really seeks to grasp the body of the other as an object for the passions to enjoy. So instead of this relationship of mutual self-giving, we have what's called appropriation. Appropriation is an important word here. Possessing and using the other, appropriating the other for oneself. Mm -hmm. The body becomes an object of lust. The relationship before was a relationship of the gift. Now it's the relationship of appropriation. Now, when we think about our situation, the situation of historical man after the fall, St. John Paul II wrote, the heart has become a battlefield between love and lust. So I think we all could say that if someone has a a good heart, we mean that they're a good person. Mm -hmm. And the prophets of the Old Testament so often are saying to the people, harden not your hearts. So this notion of the heart is really important in in the Bible. It refers to the inner depths of the person. So we're not only talking about our emotions when we talk about the heart. We're talking about the inner depths of the person. So that includes our reason and our will, our conscience, Now, because of sin, the motives of our heart at times are a mystery to us, but the meaning of the human heart in the Bible is is, is important to understand. I mean, we have the feast of the sacred heart of Jesus, and when we talk about even the sacred heart of Jesus, we're talking about the depths of his personhood. Mm Mm-hmm. The Catechism, I think, gives a really good teaching on this. It kind of sums up the meaning of the heart. It's in number 2563, and I'll quote it. The heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center, beyond the grasp of our reason and of others, Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision, deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth, where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter, because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of covenant. So, in a sense, our heart is what makes us to be individual personal subjects. There's another quote of St. John Paul, which brings this out. He says, man is unique and unrepeatable above all because of his heart, which decides his being from within. The category of the heart is in a way the equivalent of personal subjectivity. Hmm. Now, what do we experience in our lives? We experience this internal division an opposition in our hearts 
between spirit and body. The emotions, for example, of our sensitive appetite are no longer subject in a harmonious way to our spiritual faculties of reason and will. Instead, they often seek to pursue their own path to self-gratification. Nor do our reason and will always tend towards our true good, but are often tainted by motives such as pride or vanity. Mm -hmm. So our life on earth presents a constant battle to conquer our own heart. In the words of Job, the life of man on earth is a warfare. So there's this ambiguity of the human heart after sin. So when you look at this whole idea of shame, and John Paul writes about this, he says, the phenomenon of shame arises when something which of its very nature or in view of its purpose ought to be private passes the bounds of a person's privacy and somehow becomes public. That's kind of a, a definition of, of shame. So if we look at shame and you know, it's a negative emotional experience. It arises from one's own lust or from being looked upon by another with lust as an object to be used. That's very negative. But then also there's a positive dimension. Experience of shame also springs from an intimate desire to respect the value of the other person precisely as a person, not as an object. That's why they covered themselves. So it led to sexual modesty, the desire to safeguard the personal value of another and oneself uh, by modesty. It's kind of a defensive aspect of shame's positive dimension. Behind this, there's the deeper aspiration, the longing to inspire love. While modest persons tend to conceal sexual values, they do so because they seek to inspire in persons of the opposite sex, not a reaction of sensuality, but a deeper response of love toward their whole person. So a woman desires that a man come to love her for who she is. And same for the man. So this gets very deep, this inner or profound meaning of shame. This dual significance. John Paul says it means flight that endeavor to conceal sexual values so they don't obscure the values of the person as such, but it also means the longing to inspire or experience love. Now, it's impossible for animals to experience shame. They can feel fear. They can shrink away from an evil that threatens them. But shame is impossible for them because they don't have conscious self-awareness. They don't have this capacity for reflection. Huh. They, they don't have this interior realm, and that's where shame comes from, within. The experience of shame kind of shows that we're beings with an interior life. Because of our very nature, we're the only creature willed by God for its own sake, according to the Second Vatican Council. And because of our very nature, we must freely choose to reveal ourselves, to give ourselves as a gift to others. Now, John Paul then, as he develops all this, gets to an even more specific definition of shame. And it's this. Shame is a tendency uniquely characteristic of the human person to conceal sexual values sufficiently 
to prevent them from obscuring the value of the person as such. So it has to do with the self-defense of the person who doesn't wish to be an object to be used by another. That seems like a very specific definition. Like I would assume that could be also applied to non-sexual yes. things as well, right? Exactly. And I think that's important, Kyle, because it's very important in the realm of sexuality, obviously, but it, it goes beyond that. And I think sometimes some people, they just focus on this as applied to sex, mm-hmm. but it's also applies to, we can use other people, not only as sexual objects, we can use them for other lustful purposes to get ahead or to right. make money or mm-hmm. whatever. We can use people as objects in, in many ways. Sure. So we remember the triple concupiscence, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that, but the lust of the eyes as well as the lust of the flesh and the issue of pride of life. Mm-hmm. And what about the difference between shame and guilt? Yeah, I mean, there is a difference we can distinguish. I think when we talk about, I mean, both can be healthy or unhealthy. And this gets a lot of psychologists get into the whole notion of shame and guilt. Here, we're dealing with it more on a theological and philosophical level, but it does relate to to psychology. And, you know, guilt can, you know, when we talk about within the heart and the conscience, which is this inner person, we have this feeling or experience of guilt when we do something bad when we do something evil and that's a positive thing i mean if a person doesn't have guilt they're you know they're really fallen i mean where it becomes unhealthy is when it leads to self-hatred mm. and it can lead to severe depression it can lead to suicide hmm. i feel like We've, we've done a lot with the maybe the negative aspect of things, that we're a fallen person, but there is a, a redemption side of this. So That's right. That's <laughs> the next part. As, as there is with, with our, our church, with our liturgical seasons and, and many things. So uh, before we get to that, just a reminder, if you have questions for Bishop, you can text them to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we will continue to talk about theology of the body historical man and how redemption fits in coming up on truth and charity with bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union what's the difference between notre dame federal credit union and a bank well banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit notre dame fcu is different we are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products services and education If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about our part two of a three-part series, talking about theology of the body and how the, I guess this uh, triptych, some refer to it as, of original man, which we talked about last episode. Today we've been talking about historical man, and then maybe next episode we can talk about eschatological man. Uh, we talked about shame entering into the world through the fall of 
Adam and Eve, but it doesn't end there with historical man. Right. Now we go to the the fact of of being redeemed by by the blood of Christ. And I think it's good to get back to that sentence that Jesus taught in Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like very foundational for this. When Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's really an appeal here that Jesus is making to the heart, to the inner person. He's calling us to be pure, not just in our external actions, but in our inmost thoughts. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he's inviting us interiorly to rise to God's original plan before sin. So does this mean we should always distrust our heart? No, it means that we must keep it under control. You know, sometimes there's a temptation, can be strong, to accuse the heart and distrust it suspiciously. Hmm. And I find this very interesting. John Paul refers to three philosophers who, or three figures who profoundly influenced modern philosophy and modern anthropology. And the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur called these three modern figures masters of suspicion. Okay. And the three masters of suspicion are Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Nietzsche. They have three systems based upon the threefold lust that we've been talking about, hidden within the human heart. Each of these figures, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche, are reducing the reductive vision of the human person. Mm -hmm. They each have an element of truth about man, but their, their philosophy, their teachings have, are very appealing to some people. As a matter of fact, they've had a big influence on modern man and seduced us into, into errors. I mean, we see some of the things that have come because of what Freud wrote or what Nietzsche wrote or what Marx wrote. So they're really reducing the entire person to a single aspect of truth that they've discovered. So this reductive, it's kind of neglecting the transcendental reality of the human person. So, so John Paul's getting to the truth about the human person, and he's really responding to these masters of suspicion. Because really, it's not only reductive— but also destructive Um, because each of these figures give a partial distorted response to the question, what is man? Okay. Nietzsche, for example, reduces man to what? His will to power, his desire for dominion over others. If you've ever read Friedrich Nietzsche, his quest for the Superman who affirms his own will as supreme. Well, that's one of the three lusts. It's the pride of life, Mm. the pride of life in the first letter of St. John. Mm -hmm. And what are the consequences of such a reductive vision of man? Things like Nazism, Mm -hmm. 
and fascism. Think about those ideologies and what has been the result. So, and then you look at Karl Marx. Basically, man is simply what he produces. Only through the production of material goods can persons overcome this profound sense of alienation that they have, if you look at Marx's philosophy. So what is man reduced to? The lust of the eyes. Mm. The lust of the eyes. So what's been the consequence? The errors of the communist empire. Mm -hmm. Then you look at Freud. What is man? He reduces man to no more than his drive for sexual pleasure, the libido. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the end, all of our motivations can be reduced to the sexual urge when you study Freud. So basically, the human person is completely dominated by the lust of the flesh. And we see all the bad fruits of that. All the suffering, the emotional, psychological suffering that's been produced by the sexual revolution. So many broken lives. And I think this is amazing, the way John Paul analyzes all of this. Because if we would stop at just being suspicious of the human heart, Christ's words reveal that there's something deeper than lust within man. You know, we don't just say, well, lust is the definitive key for interpreting who man is. Because even though Christ speaks of this whole idea of lust, it's not the absolute criterion of anthropology and ethics. Sin doesn't constitute the last word about our nature or about our destiny. So here we get to redemption. Christ has redeemed us from sin at the price of his blood, shed in agony upon the cross, and he gave us the strength to answer his own appeal to our hearts by his incarnation, his suffering, his passion, and his resurrection. So we have this new reality that penetrates the lives of the pers any person who responds to God's grace. St. Paul spoke of this as the redemption of the body. And that's what John Paul focuses on. Because Jesus' words are, though they're demanding, and they are demanding, they're appealing to a new way of life. Jesus identifies adultery, not just as a physical thing, a bodily action, but it's something within the, the heart, the intentions of the heart. And that's where his grace, that's where Jesus' grace is meant to penetrate into the inner core of our person. That's what defines who we are. Okay? And it was in one of his audiences, and I'll never forget this. It was back in 1980. He said something in one of his Theology of the Body addresses, audiences, that made headlines around the world. Of course, you're too young to remember this. <laughs> where he said, it is possible for a husband to look lustfully at his own wife and so commit adultery with her in his heart. Well, that became a huge controversy. Yeah. You know, headlines were saying, Pope says 
a man can commit adultery with his own wife. Uh-huh. But it's true. Adultery in the heart is committed when a man looks at his wife, a woman, well, basically when he looks at a woman who's not his wife in that way. But even if he looked at the woman who is his wife in a lustful way, in a way that's seeing her as an object, that's adultery in his heart. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it created so much controversy, what he said, but it did. So he's not seeing his wife as a person Mm -hmm. with whom he enters into a loving communion with when he has sex with her. Rather, she's reduced to an object to satisfy his sexual urge. So I hope this is clear. What Jesus is calling us to is to rise to a new way of life that's in keeping with our dignity as persons. And... He doesn't just command us. He gives us help. Mm. He gives us the grace we need through prayer, the sacraments, through uniting our sufferings with his, because he's won this for us, the redemption of our bodies through his own blood. So we might think, okay, these words of Jesus are pretty, pretty severe, but think about it. They're powerful words that Jesus has opened up a new way for us. He's by the redemption of the body. And what we're called to do is to strive to live this out every day. And this is where we find freedom. So we don't just stop at the accusation of the human heart and regard it always with suspicion, kind of following those masters of suspicion, Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Um, But... The whole thing is, you know, there is redemption, the redemption of the body. There's fighting against lust of the flesh and et cetera, or lust of the eyes and against pride. But we can rediscover the nuptial meaning of the body and experience interior freedom by the grace of Christ. And we can have, you know, the spiritual power to master this lust. It's an interior call. I love where we can speak of this. This is what it means to live according to the Spirit. And that's a favorite of mine because I have so many confirmations, sacrament confirmation. I'll say to the young people that I've confirmed who I meet later, I'll say, are you living according to the Spirit? This is when one lives this new power that we're given in the redemption this new way of life, the transforming power of the redemption. Because this is Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, a real power that can influence our actions. Jesus won for us this new life of the Spirit. But we have to open ourselves to his grace because we experience within ourselves a resistance. We have this life according to the flesh that St. Paul talks about. So there's two ways of living, a life according to the flesh or a life according to the spirit. This is the drama of our life. These are two conflicting forces. And St. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Mm. So we have to choose between these two alternatives. You know, there's a 
quote in the book of Deuteronomy, which kind of gets this, gets at this, where Moses said to the people in the desert, the Israelites, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. So we can choose life according to the spirit or life according to the flesh. Now, how do we know which is having the up, getting the upper hand in our life in this struggle? Well, St. Paul gives us kind of lists of, of indications, what he calls the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, he writes, Now the works of the flesh are plain, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our eternal destiny is at stake here. Now, this battle. Now, if we live according to the flesh, we're talking about a freedom from any restriction on concupiscence, on the desires of the passions. So when we talk about this freedom from, we're talking about license, the freedom to do whatever we want. That's a false view of freedom. John Paul, throughout his pontificate, would write about that. And I'll never forget his homily in Baltimore when he was made a trip to the United States. And he was very strong on this because, of course, as, as Americans, we prize our freedom. Mm -hmm. And he said, true freedom is not to do whatever we want, but to do what we ought. Right. And really, St. Paul warns against that false view of freedom, freedom as license. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he says very clearly, be sure of this that no fornicator or impure man or one who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. He says that in his letter to the Ephesians, mm -hmm. chapter 5, verse 5. Christ reveals to us the truth about freedom. It's not an end in itself. Freedom is for love. Mm. For love. So freedom is fulfilled when we love one another as he has loved us. That's the supreme commandment. That's the inner meaning of freedom. But the thing is, he gives us this new freedom through his redemption. He sends us his Holy Spirit, whose transforming power at work within us makes it possible to love one another as he has loved us. That's what makes us truly free. True freedom is freedom to love. Mm -hmm. That's why St. Paul said, and it's very famous, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And then in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he writes, for you were called to freedom, brethren, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So really, freedom finds its fulfillment in love, in charity. It's the source of new works and of life according to the Spirit. Well, if you don't mind, I think we'll take a break here, and we can continue this in the next segment and also pick up eschatological. I think you said that one was a little bit lighter of a topic. So maybe if we break this up a little bit, we'll still get it in three episodes, uh, but we'll we'll do the, a continuation in the next one. And is it going into purity? Yes. Well, this has been fascinating. And again, we did the original man. If you missed that, check out last week's episode. And then next week, we'll continue talking about historical man and get into eschatological man as well. So thank you, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before sure. we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.